It's the Maxwell Institute Podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. Joseph Smith, Latter-day Saint prophet, left a lot of documents behind when he died in 1844. Some of the documents were more mundane, some were more intriguing. Some of the most puzzling documents deal with a book of scripture in the Latter-day Saint canon called the Book of Abraham. Said to be translated from ancient papyrus, the scripture broadens the story of the Hebrew Bible's figure of Abraham. Where did the papyrus come from? And what do modern Egyptologists have to say? What do these documents tell Latter-day Saint historians about Joseph Smith's work as a translator? Brian Hauglid and Robin Scott Jensen join us in this episode to talk about the latest scholarship on the Book of Abraham. Jensen is an Associate Managing Historian with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Project Archivist for the Joseph Smith Papers. Hauglid is a visiting fellow here at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute. It's Robin Scott Jensen and Brian M. Hauglid on The Book of Abraham. Questions and comments about this and other episodes of the show can be sent to me at mipodcast at byu.edu. Robin Scott Jensen and Brian M. Hauglid join us today. They're the editors of Volume 4, Book of Abraham and Related Manuscripts, part of the Joseph Smith Papers Project. And I know both of you, so Rob, I already know that I can call you Rob. Thanks yep. for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here, Blair. Thank you. Yeah, and also, Brian, you're here at the Maxwell Institute. We've known each other for quite some time now, and it, but it's good to sit down and actually be in an interview setting with you. Glad to be here. So we're talking about these Egyptian documents. Let's begin with some context. Early Americans in Joseph Smith's time, so we're looking at the early 1800s, were fascinated by Egypt. It wasn't just Joseph Smith. It wasn't just Latter-day Saints. This was something that, that spread across different parts of America in general. So let's talk about what this fascination was about. Was it a new fascination? Well, we're looking at probably the later 1700s, maybe, somewhere around there where you have a lot going on over in Egypt, following um, Napoleon's going into Alexandria there and then unloading a lot of uh, artisans and people that would sketch things. And I mean, there's, there's a lot that was going on at that time. And then they would, of course, unearth things. They had to get rid of a lot of sand first. But they had to un they unearthed lots of materials, uh, papyri, mummies, of course, but all sorts of other artifacts as well. We think that, of Napoleon as sort of this, like, being involved in warfare, right? Napoleon and the French army, and they go into Alexandria, and then they're interested in artifacts when they get in there? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is not uncommon, I don't think, for coming into a new country. I mean, Egypt, I'm sure, at that time was pretty mysterious to a lot of people. There hadn't been a lot that people knew about it, obviously. Sort of like this lost civilization. Yeah, something like that. And so then when you start getting out all these artifacts that, that you're unearthing from the ground and you're finding tombs and temples and all sorts of monumental architecture, it just, it just grabs the imagination, I'm sure. And this uh, wasn't the first time that people become aware that Egypt was there. As you said, it, it sort of had this, this aura of of deep lost time. So Egyptian language was also a pretty big puzzle. And in the introduction to this book on Joseph Smith's Egyptian documents, you talk about some of the fascination with Egyptian language that, that goes pretty far back. What was that about? Well, there was there were ideas, uh, even up into Joseph Smith's day, about Egyptian being closely related to Hebrew. Uh, they knew Hebrew, of course. But if you could crack Egyptian and, and see what 
is lying behind those languages that perhaps you can go even further back and in a religious sense maybe even find the language of Adam the pure language that kind of thing and so there was a language component to it that was really important and that goes right up into Joseph Smith's period but the other part with all the artifacts it's when these artifacts start going out into Europe and then we have a term for it we call it Egyptomania Uh, it's pretty common term now I think that's used in scholarship where it reaches into the United States in the early 1800s and like everybody was wearing Egypt t-shirts and <laughs> yeah and probably like that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> why not I mean but I mean it's just fascinating to these people and so when we get more into the story of the book of Abraham we'll see that's just that's a big part of it uh, with these traveling shows basically of yeah. showing off these artifacts One of the things that was discovered, I think, after Napoleon's invasion um, that really advanced the ball or began to advance the ball on the Egyptian language was the Rosetta Stone. Talk about the Rosetta Stone a little bit. Yes, that was found in Alexandria, Egypt. I can't remember the exact date right now. It's not at the top of my head, but it was found fairly early on. It was in three languages, and one of them was Greek. The other one was uh, hieroglyphs, and the other one was a later rendition of Egyptian that was called uh, demotic. And of course, Champollion knew Greek. And so this he was is a able, scholar that. Yeah, yeah. And so he was able to crack the language, if you will. Yeah, it's sort of like an interpretive key. Like, exactly. Cipher. Because it was yeah. the same message in all these three yeah. scripts. And so and he was able to to figure that out. And he started working on that about the time Joseph Smith was thinking about these things too. But in the book, you write that. It was really an academic exercise at this point, and it wasn't seeping down to the general public. No, no, not at all. Uh, In fact, uh, you have other people working on Egyptian before Champollion. Thomas Young is one who wanted to be credited more than he probably was on on laying some groundwork in this. But it's Champollion, obviously, that really brings it out. But this is a little bit earlier on. I think his publication was, what, 1820-something, early 1820s, when he puts out his grammar, and that grammar actually doesn't really get into the United States until probably the mid-1850s, I yeah. would say. So this was after the Book of Abraham was produced, oh, yeah, after yeah. these documents yeah. were well, created. Well, after the Book yeah. of Abraham. Uh, I mean, you did, have, you did have some people working on it and publishing on it in New York that was contemporary with Joseph Smith, but it was still, it was still uh, not as extensive and probably as as uh, much of a language, I mean, no language courses or anything, I wouldn't think, that were going on and teaching it or in the colleges or universities at that point. And Rob, there were competing theories leading up to this about how to decipher Egyptian that maybe you could talk about a little bit, whether these hieroglyphs represented ideas or whether they were just sounds, sort of like our alphabet today. What kind of competing ideas were floating around? Yeah, so even though Joseph Smith wasn't necessarily drawing upon the... uh, up-to-date scholarship going on in Europe, he did have these uh, assumptions, these just, it was in the water that these many scholars for the last hundred plus years, in fact, uh, trying to figure out these hieroglyphs. Uh, What was this language? What did it mean? And so, yeah, you had a lot of different theories. You had uh, theories that would say, oh, one hieroglyph 
uh, might have multiple meanings, uh, or one hieroglyph could have whole thoughts, uh, uh, complete sentences that uh, were based upon just one hieroglyph itself. So, so when Joseph Smith and others um, looked to these uh, hieroglyphs, they could draw upon many different theories, many different um, takes on what these characters may have meant. Talk about the mummy enthusiasm a little bit, too, because the way that the papyri that Joseph Smith would eventually uh, possess came to him was in tandem with these actual mummies, some of these antiquities that were flowing into America. So talk about the mummy enthusiasm that was going on. Yeah, so along with this Egyptomania, uh, you had uh, people who, um, institutions that would purchase mummies, purchase um, papyri, purchase artifacts from uh, from Egypt. Uh, and this was the beginning of some of these uh, great uh, collections throughout uh, Europe and the United States. But as part of that, uh, you had individuals who were very curious but couldn't afford to to buy these things. And so you essentially had traveling exhibits, uh, individuals who would have mummies um, and just tour various places. Uh, there is evidence that uh, one such exhibit was uh, within just a few miles from the Smith home in Palmyra. So these these went throughout the United States. And one of the things that I love and that I would love to um, experience if, if I were a time traveler um, are some of these um, unwrapping parties. I don't know what they called them back then. That's what I call them, um, where you would get a mummy and uh, a big gathering would come together and you would just unwrap the mummy, see what was underneath. Um, this seems so unreal. <laughs> it's wild. Like today, it, I'm sure archaeologists and, and people today would just lose their minds. Yeah, no, this, this, is, this is not what uh, what archaeologists or other scholars would want to see happen, but, uh, but it really does capture kind of the sense of uh, really the excitement that uh, people had in the 19th century. And the proximity to it. I yeah, say, yeah. And, and, and I would add that, uh, you know, we, we sometimes look back and say, oh, yeah, that's you know, they didn't have the internet or TV or, or whatever. They were bored, so they were interested in this. But I remember as an elementary school kid learning the hieroglyphs and what they meant. And I remember in Utah, they had a bunch of papyri come, and, and it was a big deal, and it was exciting. And, uh, you know, you pull out a dollar bill, and there's still pyramids on that. I, I mean— we're still captivated. We still have, we've, we've inherited this, this fascination, really, with, with Egyptian um, civilization. It, it's interesting that uh, during this period, you've also got sort of uh, the, these fads of, of selling mummy wrappings, you know, parts of mummy wrappings, mummy rags, they called them, or mummy dust that they put in, the, in to make medicines out of, yeah. those kinds of things. I mean, it was really interesting how they looked at these the mummy dust couldn't have been that helpful. Like, the mummies were dead. Yeah. If they had any kind of magical powers. <laughs> hey, it, this, it's all this mystique, this yeah. mysteriousness that we're talking about here, that this fascination with anything ancient Egypt. Yeah. It, it's strange to envision what uh, people in the 19th century would have ingested, and that does include mummy dust. Yes, it does include yeah. that. Well, how did these particular mummies then get to Joseph Smith and, and wind up in Kirtland, Ohio, of all places. You have mummies coming from Egypt and winding up in, in Ohio. So with Napoleon's uh, discovery, he, he brought scholars um, into Egypt. They, uh, they kind of revitalized this interest in, in Egypt. And so you had uh, uh, many individuals uh, trying to fill a market of interest in, in Egyptian materials. So 
Uh, you had various individuals digging up spots in Egypt, graves, uh, whatnot, um, and some of that collection uh, made its way to America. Uh, a man by the name of Lobolo um, is known to have uh, unearthed much of this collection. The material that Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints uh, obtained was actually a much smaller percentage of what uh, was originally unearthed. And we can trace it um, here and there, not completely, not totally to our satisfaction, but we can trace it um, from Egypt uh, into Europe, Italy, uh, over to uh, New York City, and then it was part of this traveling exhibit, essentially. And by the time, uh, shortly before the this exhibit uh, made its way to Kirtland, Ohio, we have a man by the name of uh, Michael Chandler who uh, was overseeing that. And so he sold some of that collection off piecemeal. Um, anyway, Michael Chandler uh, in 1835 in the summer came into Kirtland, uh, apparently with the understanding that he was going to finish off selling this collection. Um, and he felt that uh, Joseph Smith and uh, other Latter-day Saints would have uh, been an interested party for this collection. And so Joseph sees these mummies in the papyri. He's he's very much interested. And in, in the book, you talk about how he sort of offers up a quick translation sample to Chandler. And then Chandler sort of gives this certificate saying like, oh, yeah, this is great job on this translation. But as you write in the book, you know, it was probably more that he, you know, he's trying to make a sale. He's going to, he's going to ingratiate himself uh, to Joseph and the saints. And so this initial translation was probably not what a scholar, an Egyptian scholar today would produce. Yeah. I mean, Chandler was probably to some degree an opportunist. I mean, there's no question about that. This was a money-making venture for him. Like uh, there had been a total of 11 mummies originally that came into New York and he had sold seven of them along the way. So by the time he, you know, so he has four left when he's going into Kirtland. And so there's money's definitely an issue with all of this. Um, but we don't really know exactly when Michael Chandler comes into the picture because we just find him in Cincinnati and then he comes into Kirtland. But we don't really know what's going on up and down the eastern coastline there. Who's it responsible for? We have an idea of some of some of where the uh, these uh, mummies went and who bought some of them, but we're not sure if there was a, a Chandler involved with any of that. Are any of those particular mummies that were part of that grouping still around? Yeah, there's uh, one of the heads of one of the seven mummies is in the University of Pennsylvania, and that was brought to campus one time. H. Uh, Donnell Peterson had it here in the early 80s huh. when he would teach uh, Pearly Great Price and uh, show it off to the students. But it got to be an, a liability issue. Yeah. And, uh, and there's also BYU. ethical questions about it. Yeah, and there's too, ethical though. questions as well. Yeah. So there were, so eventually it had to be taken back yeah. to Pennsylvania, but it's there. Hmm. I don't know if it's on display, but, yeah. but that's one of them. Yeah, there's some movements to even like repatriate antiquities, and there's a lot of controversy about that, about antiquities and things that were taken as part of war, and, and whether those should remain in, in countries that they were taken away to, or whether they should be returned to a them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, the Rosetta Stone is actually a good example of that. Yeah. Egypt would like that back. Yeah. Where is uh, it housed now? It's at the British Museum okay. in uh, England. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's really controversial to yeah. say, like, who should own these things. That's right. And some, you know, would make the argument, well, we've been caring for it all this time, or we can provide this, you know, this, and look at all this great research that happened. But then they say, well, this, this came from our, <laughs> from our country, well, from our Well, it comes from, uh, you know, that colonial 
mindset, yeah. you know, that we're the civilized people and these are the savages, so yeah. to speak. What and about the mummies that Joseph Smith had in particular? Uh, what happened to the mummies? I know after he died, they were still in the possession of Lucy Mac Smith, I think you said? Yeah, yeah. And then after that, uh, after Lucy dies in 1856, I think it is, mm-hmm. then M, of course, takes possession of the mummies and uh, I don't know how long but it isn't long after that it's within a matter of weeks is Emma, it Emma apparently didn't like dead bodies in her house yeah, so okay don't want the so mummies she, hanging around she sold them she sold them off fairly quickly yeah yeah and she sold them to do you remember who who it's that to was? the Coom, Coombs, Coombs family. family Abel Coombs that's yep. right yep yep and then uh, Abel Coombs had them for a time uh, the collection apparently split into at least two collections one collection made its way eventually to Chicago um, and they were on display at the Chicago Museum. Uh, and then with the Great Fire of Chicago, um, that collection burned up. Uh, that included some of the papyri, not uh-huh. just mummies. Yes. Uh-huh. That was in 1871, yeah. And for, and for a time, for a good, good time, most scholars believe that all of the collection had burned in Chicago. Um, but then uh, in the 1960s, it was made aware that uh, the papyri that is existing now was in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And eventually that was acquired by the church, uh, where it is today. I think there were two mummies as well that didn't make it to the <laughs> Chicago. That's right. Uh, Brian that, was just talking about the one in Pennsylvania. So Yeah, yeah. And so there's Brian Smith. I don't know if he's done some work on this. Uh, and he's he traced some of the four going up into Canada. Hmm. And so uh, that's about where he's kind of left off. We're not exactly sure what's happened since then. Did we just like pack these up in boxes and ship them around and stuff? Like these mummies are floating around on barges and and whatnot? Well, yeah. I mean, conservation probably wasn't really very technical back in those days. That's what's amazing Uh, is these mummies lasted... Century, oh yeah, millennia. Millennia. And then within the span of 200 years, most of them we don't quite know. Yeah. That's right. So one thing I'll add, um, this question about, uh, you know, the ultimate repository for some of these ancient artifacts. Um, I think the physicality of the papyri, the, the Joseph Smith papyri, really kind of clarifies this issue where the papyri are, in fact, ancient documents. Uh, you know, they were created uh, um, a little bit before the time of Christ. They had meaning, interpretation, the purpose of creation. And then when Joseph Smith and his fellow clerks and, and leaders and whatnot uh, acquired these papyri, they, they made them their own, essentially. They, they cut them up, they um, pasted them to backing on some fairly important paper. Which uh, they thought would maybe even preserve it. Yeah, like would, would can, preserve yeah, it. They, yeah. they were trying, they were doing this with an eye of, of preservation. And we, we looked at one point of, at these papyri and had an expert come and look at them just to understand the condition that they were in and whatnot. Um, and the papyrologist, this conservator, um, said, you know what? It probably would be better if you removed the paper backing that would preserve the papyri better. But that paper backing was um, actually drawings of the Kirtland House of the Lord, the Kirtland Temple. Um, These are very important 19th century documents for uh, the LDS Church. And so here we have the papyri themselves, um, both ancient documents, also 19th century documents, in the sense that uh, they they really made a mark. They were part of LDS history. Um, And to divide the ancient context with the 19th century context 
proves very, very difficult. You have to understand them both in their ancient setting, but also how Joseph Smith and his fellow clerks interpreted it, used it, um, brought their own cultural sensibilities to these documents. Yeah, the the marriage of those documents seems like a, a metaphor yeah. for for the Book of Abraham in some ways, where you have this intersection between the ancient world and the 19th century, and they've been glued together, and that trying to separate them or trying to pull them apart can do damage to both things, and, and sort of trying to understand each of those things in yep. their respective contexts. Yep. In, intellectually, you want to divide them. You want to say, okay, well, the papyri, that's one thing. The 19th century setting, that's another thing. Um, they're not together. Um, and in, sense, in some senses, that is true. Right. But in another way, we have to understand how Joseph Smith and others uh, viewed the the papyri, viewed them in their 19th century context without trying to take on our own understanding of uh, there's been a lot of work in Egyptology since Joseph Smith's day, obviously. And, you, and I would say like the vast majority of, yeah, exactly. of usable work And, has and been so done. it's very tempting to say, well, Joseph Smith didn't know what he was talking about. Oliver Cowdery, Phelps, others, they were naive in thinking that they could even make sense of this. But, but for Joseph and his contemporaries, this was a real effort. This was a real attempt to understand these papyri for what they were, what they could offer them, and what they could teach about humanity, about the universality of human nature. Yes, that's that's kind of where I was going to go. I mean, you have the you have really a first response to all this Egyptomania stuff going on with all these papyri fragments and such coming in. And this is, we're seeing Joseph Smith's as one of those first responders, in a sense, to this material coming into their possession. And what they're making of it is, is sometimes for us, you know, they're, we we might say it's off, it's not Egyptology at all, and that's okay. But, but just the fact that they, how they responded to it tells us things. It helps us understand kind of where they're coming from. In terms of, and this Egyptology, or not Egyptology, but uh, Egyptian material triggers that for us. And so we get a kind of a close-up view, in a sense. Yeah. I often tell people that uh, Joseph Smith and others work in understanding, trying to decipher these papyri, tell us more about their own worldview than it does about the ancient world. Absolutely. I agree. Yes. Absolutely. That's true. That's Brian Hauglid and Rob Jensen. We're talking about their new book, part of the Joseph Smith Papers Project, in the Revelations and Translations series. It's the volume called Book of Abraham and Related Manuscripts. So, picking up the thread we were just pulling, the book itself uses different terms to describe Joseph Smith's work here. Uh, I think one thing the book makes clear is that if someone looks at the Joseph Smith papyri that we have and compares to the Book of Abraham, modern Egyptologists would look at that and say, that's not what's on that papyri. So when we think about what translation is, we typically think about one-to-one correspondence. You have an old document in a different language, you put it into this new language, and they're basically much the same thing. But you talk about how translation, decipherment, and transliteration are ways to think about what Joseph Smith was doing here, and it's different than what we typically think of as a translation today. We need to remember Joseph Smith was first and foremost a prophet. He he claimed that uh, title. People of, uh, of the church joined the church uh, with that understanding. Joseph Smith was a prophet, seer, revelator. That's how he was known to uh, Latter-day Saints. 
when he claimed these translations, when he told uh, the world, essentially, that he translated, um, we sometimes think this is a scholarly translation, that this is, he's pulling out dictionaries or, um, you know, English to reformed Egyptian dictionaries or whatnot. Um, but that, that is not the case. Um, he, this was not a purely academic approach. Uh, for the Book of Mormon translation, I think it's actually quite helpful to understand not just the Egyptomania context for these papyri, um, but to understand Joseph Smith's own translation context. Uh, Joseph Smith was not unfamiliar with producing translations. He had produced several before 1835 when these papyri came on uh, to Kirtland. In fact, Oliver Cowdery paints an interesting scene. Michael Chandler comes and shows him these ancient documents, these papyri. And Joseph Smith, in turn, shows Michael Chandler copies from the Golden Plates, these characters from the New World versus the Old World, essentially. They're comparing writings from ancient cultures. Uh, Joseph Smith, when he translated the Book of Mormon, had many different ways in which he would translate. Um, He, of course, uh, used instruments such as the Urim and Thummim, the interpreters, the seer stones. Um, He also was engaged on an intellectual level. Um, We need to remember that when he first uh, uh, made copies of these characters, he was very willing to allow for scholars to uh, assist him in the translation. He sent Martin Harris away with the document. Exactly, exactly. And so when Joseph Smith picked up or uh, attempted to translate the Bible for the uh, Bible Revision Project, what we call the Joseph Smith translation, there's a similar approach where uh, it seems that he is relying upon divine guidance, but he's also, uh, with current scholarship and, and whatnot, it seems that he's also relying on scholarship uh, of the day that uh, um, he's looking at uh, various biblical commentaries in, in the translation. So all of that... He started a Hebrew school. And yeah, yeah. He's, he's interested in, in both the divine translation, but he's also recognizing that there is an uh, intellectual component there as well. Um, unfortunately, we don't have much from Joseph Smith himself. At an early conference of the church, Hiram Smith stands up and asks Joseph... You mean, you mean much f- uh, of him describing how the translation exactly, worked? Right. Exactly, exactly. Uh, when uh, at this early conference of the church, Hiram Smith stood up and said, Hey, Joseph, why don't you tell those assembled how you translated the Book of Mormon? Um, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Um, and Joseph Smith stood up and said, No, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, it's not for the world to know. The closest we have or the most detailed we have from for the Book of Mormon translation from Joseph Smith is... I translated it by the gift and power of God. So what we need to remember when we hear these words translate, uh, decipher, whatnot, Joseph Smith is relying upon a divine component in in translating. But we also need to remember that um, there is an intellectual component as well. Uh, And so it shouldn't surprise us. In fact, it, it, it would surprise us if we didn't have some of these documents that they produced in trying to decipher the Egyptian language. It was essentially them following scriptural mandate in studying it out in their mind. Um, we, of course, remember the story uh, when Oliver Cowdery was helping, assisting Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon translation. He wanted to have a go. He wanted to translate. Uh, Joseph Smith uh, allowed him to try it out. He tried, failed. They received a revelation um, that uh, essentially said, Oliver, you didn't think this through. You thought that you would just get the translation, but you have to study it out in your mind. I believe that the Egyptian language documents that are published in this volume is the documentary record of Joseph Smith and others studying it out in their mind. 
And you also include a number of quotes from people associates of Joseph Smith describing the process. So while Joseph didn't say, here's, here's exactly how it worked, other people were making assumptions and talking about it. So, for example, some people were talking about the Urim and Thummim and saying that he would use that to translate. And in other accounts, that's not present there. So you also have some different accounts from Joseph Smith's own associates about how it was working. Yeah, and, and actually we have more about Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon than we do with the Book of Abraham. Uh, we just have very little from Joseph Smith's associates on how the Book of Abraham was actually translated. Uh, we have a few uh, references to instruments. The very best uh, reference comes from Wilford Woodruff in his daily journal in, in Nauvoo. He was assisting in the printing office in setting the type when they were publishing the Book of Abraham for the church. He in his journal uh, mentioned that Joseph Smith was translating these hieroglyphs um, through the aid of the Urim and Thummim. We have uh, another close associate, uh, Warren Parrish, who uh, after he'd left the church, so he was uh, fairly bitter, actually, towards Joseph Smith. Uh, he said that uh, he sat by Joseph Smith's side uh, as he, Joseph, translated, or so he claimed, these hieroglyphs. And so even this kind of antagonistic source claims that Joseph Smith indicated that the his translation was through divine guidance. Yeah, that he wasn't just sitting down and he, he, didn't, he didn't know how to read Egyptian, in other words. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Brian, I wanted to ask you now about the different kinds of documents that are in this volume, because it's not just the Book of Abraham. And this is where I think a lot of people haven't heard this part of the history. So this book contains three different categories of documents. It contains the papyri, it contains Egyptian language documents, and then it contains manuscripts and first publication of the Book of Abraham itself. So differentiate between those for people. Sure. So with the papyri, we have all of the fragments that were returned to the church in 1967. So all those fragments are now in possession of the church. And that includes like one of the facsimiles? That includes one of the vignettes. The vignettes, yeah. Uh, for the for the facsimile one, for facsimile one. Yeah. And, uh, and that was connected to another fragment that's very important that we'll, that we'll bring up in a minute. Now, now, I don't know how far we want to go here, but those fragments are, generally speaking, funerary documents. In other words, Book of the Dead, you probably heard that. Book of Breathings is a very common title that you'll hear. So these are texts that the ancient Egyptians would create to bury with someone who died, and it would sort of be like a guidebook or a passbook in the afterlife. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Almost like a passport. Yeah, something like that, yeah. So it's not a narrative of the Book of Abraham in, in these particular documents. It's no, none more of these of none of these documents have any of the Book of Abraham on them, yeah. except for just the vignette from which we get facsimile number one. Okay, that's all we have, and so th these documents do not have the Book of Abraham on it. Yeah, in fact, you edited a series that that first published translations of those. Here yes, through the Maxwell Institute. That's exactly yeah. right. Yes, through the studies in the Book of Abraham series where Michael Rhodes puts out uh, his translation and commentaries of two of the major, I guess, uh, scrolls, if you want to call them that, or rolls of papyrus. One is the scroll of Hor. That's the one with the uh, image of the facsimile number one on it and the papyri that goes with that. Then there's the other one, the Tashirat Min, which is uh, a different roll that he also translated and provided commentary for. And that's more related to the 
to uh, what we'll talk about as the notebooks. Okay. Okay. In a, just a moment here. So, so you have the papyri, and we could go on and on and on about the papyri. And but we don't have it all. Some of it's missing. Yeah, yeah. We don't have yeah. everything that was in the possession yeah. of Joseph Smith. So, yeah. but what we do have is pretty significant. So, and we'll we'll talk about why it's significant uh, as we go along here. And maybe I'll just jump in the uh, Joseph Smith papers. Is it's a collection of documents created by or owned by Joseph Smith. Some might say, well. These papyri, they were created 2,000 years ago. Why are they part of the Joseph Smith papers? Um, it's under that criteria of ownership. Joseph Smith purchased these documents. They were in his possession. He showed them to many people. Because of that criteria, we, we have published the papyri. Was there something in particular about that criteria? Was there something that the Joseph Smith Papers project, it was as it was originally envisioned, wanted to like include? And so that's – because it's – there's a logic to it, yeah. but I'm interested about why that logic was what was landed on. Uh, it helps in publishing the papyri, but it actually um, helps us uh, publish uh, incoming correspondence. Um, oh, okay. he, he's not obviously writing letters that are coming to him, but uh, we wanted to capture those. Uh, and so ownership was the way in which we could uh, uh, incorporate the okay. incoming correspondence. Interesting. So then you mentioned another category of documents, the Egyptian documents. And what we have there is we have a couple of notebooks that have uh, drawings in them from some of the papyri. So someone copied drawings. They like looked exactly. at the papyri, Joseph Smith's clerks looked at it, and then sort of made copies of those drawings. Exactly. And then you also have some of the characters drawn from some of the papyri as well written into these notebooks. And we're not exactly sure what what these notebooks were used for. Um, they could have been some of the initial scribblings that they got when they first got the papyri, perhaps, because uh, it isn't, a lot of it's in Oliver Cowdery and W.W. W. Phelps' handwriting, and who Joseph were the Smith's. ones that were yeah. were uh, named as those who were going to help translate the Book of Abraham. Yeah. And so, so I can see why their names would kind of be prominent there. But those notebooks are, there's two of them. One of them has ancient records, found buried in ancient Egypt or something like that, and then Joseph Smith's signature is underneath that. Uh, so they're, they're pretty interesting, and we could go on and on about that again, but, but let's go to the next Egyptian papers, and that's three 1835 Egyptian alphabet documents in the handwriting of Joseph Smith, and with some help from Oliver Cowdery on that one, W.W. W. Phelps, of course, and then Oliver Cowdery again. And they pretty much cover the same material in these. In other words, they'll take characters from the papyri, and they'll put them in a left column, and some. I think they tried to do a pronunciation guide, okay, with how to say this this particular glyph or whatever. Uh, and we don't know exactly where those transliterations came from, quite honestly. And then after yeah, they that, didn't write. They didn't write where it came from. Like, there's they, no didn't, they didn't tell us where it came from. Yeah. So my guess, okay, this is just me. Yeah. I'm suspecting that they're thinking this is all a revelatory process. So they wouldn't have to tell us where it's coming from if it was in, in that sense, you know, being a revelation. But that's just, you know, that's just my opinion. So then they'd have in the far right section, they'd have, a, they'd have the meaning. So it was, they were kind of lexical papers. They were in kind of a lexical format where you have glyphs how to say it and then the meanings of these glyphs and those materials were further elaborated upon in what was called the grammar book the egyptian alphabet and grammar book 
uh, that's mostly in Phelps handwriting. There's a little bit of Parrish in there. Uh, and those expanded on those three uh, Egyptian alphabet documents and go further into another system that's, that we call, I guess, a five-degree system where uh, the lower degrees, it, it, the text or the meanings of, of the text, the glyphs and such, go from a lesser meaning to a greater meaning. Yeah, so there's like five levels of meaning teaching. Yeah. So you have a glyph, and it just means something basic, but then there's a second level of meaning, so it means this bigger thing, and then a third level and a fourth level, and a fifth level, which could be like a whole paragraph yeah. or something. Yeah, and generally speaking, I mean, we found some some exceptions to this, but generally speaking, that's what we're seeing. And that's not how the Egyptian language actually works. No. No, not at all. Yeah. I, I, once I showed it to an Egyptologist, a friend of mine, and I said, what do you make of these Egyptian papers here? And he says that they're not Egyptian. I think what he is trying to get at. They're just not Egyptian. And so, but those are the, I guess those are the three main components of the Egyptian part, I guess. The notebooks, the alphabet documents, and then the grammar yeah. book. I think we could probably say that those are the, the three main components of that. And then the next component, or the next category, I guess, that you mentioned is the Abraham Manuscripts, uh, and then getting ready for publication. The Abraham Manuscripts, we have three sets of 1835 documents that cover Abraham 1 to chapter 218. All three of them are, and not all three of them cover that exact range, but it's just roughly so that we're talking about. And... Those documents are unique because they have, in the left margins, they have characters taken from the fragment that was once attached to the vignette that we get facsimile one from, okay? So, in other words, let me try to simplify this a little bit. For the Egyptian alphabet, they're taking uh, glyphs from the facsimile one fragment, okay? And they're going from, generally speaking, they're going from right to left, okay? And they go all the way down uh, on the last column, and then they go to the next fragment with that was once attached, and they, they take three of the lines of characters from that and put it in these 1835 Abraham manuscripts, okay? And that, that's basically, we're, we're talking basically all Kirtland period here when we're talking about these. There's still a Nauvoo period. That where there's another Abraham manuscript. Yeah, there's a break between when they did this first part of the Book of Abraham and when Joseph did the later part of the Book of Abraham. Exactly. And that document, it's it basically appears to be more as a, uh, I, I like to call it sort of a printer's manuscript because it has the Times and Seasons paragraph numbers on it hmm. in pencil. And so I, I kind of look at it that way. As, as sort of a printer's manuscript that uh, you get in the ninth issue of the Times and Seasons. And so... Well, one thing to, uh, that I find interesting, if you look at the Joseph Smith Papers volume, this volume that we, we, we've been talking about, the majority of the documents were created in Kirtland in 1835. But if you look at just the Book of Abraham itself, the majority of the Book of Abraham was actually produced, translated in Nauvoo. Um, and I think that's something that not many have realized, where this really was divided into two parts. Uh, Joseph Smith first began uh, work in Kirtland, and then he 
stopped. Uh, the The temple was being built. He moved to Missouri. There were all sorts of problems in Missouri with non-Mormon neighbors. Uh, and then it took a long time to get things settled in, in Nauvoo, trying to get that going. So why did that break matter? Like, <clears throat> Why, why should anyone care that it had this breaking? So I find it fascinating because uh, um, Joseph Smith, as a religious leader, you can trace his developing understanding theology uh, of uh, the things that he's teaching to Latter-day Saints. And so to know that uh, the first portion of the Book of Abraham is in Kirtland, um, historians can better then understand how the theology as found in the first portion of the Book of Abraham was read by Kirtland saints and the theology that was uh, to that point revealed to those saints. But then you look at the later portion of the Book of Abraham and placing that in a Kirtland theological setting doesn't make as much sense. But when you look to the Nauvoo theological setting, uh, Joseph Smith is, has revealed all sorts of new uh, information um, that it, it fits better. There's a better context to that in Nauvoo than, than in Kirtland. And he also, Joseph Smith also incorporates Hebrew terms that he learned uh, after his, his uh, Joshua Satius tutoring, the Hebrew school in Kirtland, that come out after his uh, tutoring experience in Nauvoo where he puts some of those in Abraham 3, and there's other things that, that you find with some Hebrew connections that he would have learned. Uh, and so we, we've kind of, I think, got it where we, we can see what's going on in the Kirtland area there pretty well, I think. And that uh, the Abraham 1 to 2.18 seems to fit just fine right in that time period. And then, as Robin said, when you get up to the Nauvoo, that, that also fits that context really well in terms of his theology, in terms of how they're looking at the language, how they're incorporating some of the Hebrew, it fits into that Nauvoo period. And plus, you also have some plain language coming out of Joseph Smith's journals saying we're translating on March 8th and March 9th for the 10th number of the Times and Seasons. And so that fits as well. So you've got some historical backing there. This is where it gets tricky, I think, because people want to look at things that Joseph Smith produced as ways to determine whether or not he was a true prophet or whether or not the claims that he made were true or false. And so when we look, for example, at the Book of Abraham translation, we can see this difference between the early part of that and the later part of that. So skeptics who would criticize the prophet could say, this is an example of Joseph Smith later on kind of making up some new theology. And so you see that come out in the Book of Abraham. People who believe in the prophethood and the inspired role that Joseph Smith had would say, this is Joseph Smith receiving revelation and learning from the revelation. And then his theology develops accordingly. Can history and the historical record arbitrate between these competing pictures of, of how to account for Joseph Smith? Um, I would say no. I often tell people that uh, for members of the church, um, both 19th century and today, miraculous events do not leave in and of themselves a documentary record. The Holy Ghost is not um, uh, writing texts. Miracles, religious events, do not in and of themselves offer scholars any documentary trail. Of course, the way those religious experiences, the miracles, the, the feelings are manifested in individuals, and those individuals then write up their experiences. That That's another thing. But to use the historical record, to use the historical profession and say, see, I can now prove to you that Joseph Smith was a fraud, or 
based upon these uh, records, I can prove to you that Joseph Smith was in fact a prophet. Um, it doesn't work. It doesn't work either way. We can understand Joseph Smith's events. We can uh, what what he's doing, the types of things that he's saying, but truth claims are not provable through scholarship, and I, I think. Most members of the church inherently understand that. You can look no farther than the Book of Mormon itself, right? Um, where Mormon at the very end of the of the book says, uh, here it is, you can read it, um, but you're not going to get a testimony. You're not going to know the truthfulness until you pray about it. Um, and that the, the miracle of the testimony um, is independent from the words on the page. I wonder if it would be helpful to step back just a little bit because this this is all coming out of earlier critiques on the book of abraham here i mean you have in the 1850s you have uh, theodore uh, deveria who's looking at uh, joseph smith's tra- uh, explanations in the facsimiles and finding that they're not matching up with with his understanding of egyptian so that's one of the first and then of course later on in 1912 you have solomon spaulding the episcopal bishop up in salt lake uh, consulting with eight uh, well-known scholars, I would say, and them coming up with basically the same thing, but we're all on the facsimiles here, of course, uh, that these these explanations are not matching up. And so Joseph Smith's credibility as a, as a translator goes pretty far back. And then once you get up into 1967, where you get the return of, of these fragments uh, to the church from the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, then the plot gets even a little thicker because now we have the papyri fragment that uh, was the source for these glyphs in the Abraham manuscripts, which on the surface just look like translation manuscripts. Yeah. And so that even makes it a little bit more difficult to try to navigate. So now they're saying, maybe I guess maybe some of the critics or maybe some others I don't know are saying, you know, now look, we have a source for the book of Abraham, okay? We have a source. We have this particular fragment here that we can find on this, these manuscripts, and you can see that Joe Smith translated from those glyphs. Uh, and that makes, it, that makes it even a little tougher now, stickier, I guess, to try to understand you know, what, what's going on with Joseph Smith and his translation. You know, and then we have great scholars like Nibley you know, try to, trying to observe these kinds of things and saying, well, you know, uh, I don't think that we have the actual papyri that Joseph Smith had that, that had the book of Abraham on it. We don't have that right now. And, and he would say something like, I can, I can look at the papyri that we do have, and according to him, that didn't match what he felt was being described as the original papyri that, from which the book of Abraham comes. And so that, he's kind of, he kind of begins that that, I guess, apologetic, if you want to call it that, our defense of the church. And, and then also Nibley looked at all these Egyptian papers and said, all this material came after Joseph Smith had already translated the Book of Abraham. And so these are all works of the scribes who are trying to... Reverse to do, engineer. Yeah, the, reverse engineer, yeah. maybe the translation, yeah. or they're kind of doing their own thing. And both those thoughts, you know, that there's a missing manuscript and that these uh, Egyptian manuscripts came after the Book of Abraham was already translated are still alive and well today. 
Okay, so and you would say this research in the Joseph Smith Papers volume overturns those theories. I, I don't know if I want to say it it completely overturns them, but it certainly brings them into question. I think because I, we're we're finding things here where you're seeing not just textually because textually you can find a lot in the Egyptian alphabet documents and in the grammar book that are proto book of Abraham materials. You can you can kind of see some of that happening there, especially with chapter one and chapter three uh, of, of the Book of Abraham. Like they have some of the same ideas and names yeah, yeah, and stuff. Yeah, some conceptual things in okay. there that seem to get sort of ironed out a little bit later in the Book of Abraham. Not, not all of it, of course, not the whole chapter or anything like that, but you can certainly see that there's some connections going on there. And even in the historical documents of the last part of 1835, you have Joseph Smith's journals talking about translating the Book of Abraham at the very same time He's doing this Egyptian work. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's happening simultaneously, concurrently. And on one, he'd say, yeah, we're translating the Book of Abraham today. In other words, now we're translating an alphabet to the Book of Abraham. Now we're, we're working on the Egyptian project here. Mm -hmm. Now we're working on the Book of Abraham again. And it's going on just in those six months. And, and a lot of it is focused in on October and November of 1835, that, that they're really working hard on these things. They even have one where they're talking about transcribing characters from the papyri onto, onto paper. They even have one entry in there on that. And so it's, you know, what do you do with all that? I mean, this, this is why we're, I'm not saying it's overturning those things, but it certainly is giving us maybe a, some other points of view that we need to pursue. Robin, you want to comment um, on that? So Brian and I have been working on this for quite a number of years. Uh, Brian has worked on this longer than I have, but um, you know, I've, I've been at this for seven or eight years. Um, About as long as the Book of Abraham. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess you could say that process. way. Um, <laughs> um, and I wish we could say we have figured everything out. We know everything there is to know about it, but that's just not the case. The manuscripts are not self-evident. So, for instance, uh, a lot of the documents in the Joseph Smith Papers are fairly obvious as to what they are why they were created. If, if you've got a letter addressed to a certain individual and, and you've got a date and you've got, you know, the person signing it, you, you know what's going on. And based upon the content of the document, it's it's fairly self-evident of as why why they're creating it, how, um, under what context, etc. With these documents, you don't have that. Um, and in fact, you have a lot of questions uh, about these documents. Why do you have uh, a book of scripture, the book of Abraham, uh, next to characters from papyri? Um, th there's, there's some theories there, but it's not self-evident. It's not um, completely apparent uh, what they're doing. And as I said earlier, we don't have explicit statements from Joseph Smith and others saying, if only we had a journal entry saying, I, Joseph, am now about to write uh, or dictate the Book of Abraham, and here's the process. And I, we, we just don't have something like that, unfortunately. And so um, we have, as a result, confusing documents creating multiple theories. And th there are um, I incredibly important uh, fields of uh, scholarship that can help uh, elucidate some of these documents. Um, We've had a number of scholars approach these documents, attempt to make sense of them, uh, give various theories. We feel um, that as part of the Joseph Smith Papers, we have a certain documentary context that we, we have an understanding of, of how Joseph Smith and his clerks and scribes um, created documents. 
but because they're not self-evident, we are going to have to rely on uh, various scholars' theories on on how some of these came to be, the relationship of them, and uh, how they were received by early Latter-day Saints. I think one thing we can say, though, is that the Egyptian manuscripts play a role. Yeah. They do play a role. If you if you are to say that the book of or all these Egyptian documents came out after the book of Abraham was translated, then you know what do they mean? Uh, then you go back to the reverse translation, and yeah. they're just kind of doing some yeah. post study there. But if you put these documents in with the process of translation, what does that tell us about Joseph Smith? Is that something we should we should think about? I'm not saying it's, as Robin said, you know, we can't do 100% certitude on any of this. But if what we're seeing there happening with these documents being created concurrently with each other, we can, we can at least say that yeah. for the second half of 1835, that they're being created concurrently. And, and one final thing I'll add, um, Blair, the last couple of things that I've said, you know, kind of this, uh, the documents are very complex and, and truth claims really can only come through kind of a witness of the Holy Ghost. Those have been used in the past as kind of a, a reason to sweep under the rug some of the complexities of the com- the 19th century coming forth of the Book of Abraham. And I do not subscribe to that at all. I, uh, this is a very complex document, yes. Um, all the more reason to study it as much as we can for scholars to make sense of of these documents, to um, place them within their proper context, to try to make sense of uh, what Joseph Smith is doing, what his uh, colleagues are doing, um, and to, um, if, if Latter-day Saints truly believe that the Book of Abraham is scripture, um, then we should be studying this, the 19th century context, as much as we possibly can. As well as these documents, like what we're yep. trying to do with the book there. Agreed. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm going to go as far as to say that the, the thing that the July translation of the book of Abraham all being done at that point, it marginalizes these Egyptian papers where you don't have to take them seriously, mm-hmm. really. You can just kind of come up with a reverse idea or whatever. And I like what Rob is saying there in terms of this is something that we need to deal with. These are documents from 1835. They were serious about it. We should be serious about it. We can see the reluctance, I think, would stem from the idea that if, if Egyptologists would look at it and say, no, this, this grammar is not an Egyptian grammar, uh, then people would say that then therefore demonstrates that the Book of Abraham is also not a translation. Uh, what other options are there then for Latter-day Saints? Like, what other explanations are there for Egyptian documents that don't reflect what Egyptologists today say is actual Egyptian, and a book of Scripture that is said to be translated from ancient Egyptian documents? In my mind, I'm seeing Joseph Smith making statements that at least he believed, and I think others believed with him, that the book of Abraham was on papyri that he took that literally, and that when he says he translated from the papyri, that's what he did. That's why I have a problem with the catalyst theory. You know, the catalyst theory is a nice theory, and there is catalytic revelation going on. That's the idea that Joseph saw these papyri, they got his mind working and thinking, and that opened up the door for revelation to bring this book of Abraham, though, to him, even though it, it wasn't from the papyri, even though he could have thought that it was. Yeah, yeah, and maybe That's there's catalyst. some of that. Yeah. yeah, Certainly there's probably some of that. 
But I think he's looking at the papyri as the source for the book of Abraham, literally. Blair, you asked what uh, Latter-day Saints can do with, uh, with some of these documents. Uh, I, see, I see the Egyptian language documents as a documentary record of Joseph Smith's revelatory process. Um, we, I think, sometimes in the, in the church view Joseph Smith as uh, a fax machine for God. In other words, God has a message for the church. Uh, he pushes a button, Joseph Smith spits it out, and there it is for the church. I think that it's a little bit more complicated than that. As a Latter-day Saint, as I've looked at this, the Book of Abraham and the Egyptian language uh, documents, I've actually seen it more comparable to personal revelation than when I, what I first thought. Um, someone uh, within the church is taught from primary on up that uh, if you want to seek guidance from God, you need to, of course, pray, uh, approach God through prayer. But they also should study things out, that you should uh, bring your own intellectual attempts at solving that problem. The brother of Jared is the perfect example in the Book of uh, Mormon, where um, God doesn't always give the answers immediately. um, We are left to our own uh, understanding, our own cultural assumptions, our own intellectual effort. And I see Joseph Smith is doing the exact same thing. He is putting in the effort, so to speak. He wants uh, revelation. He's uh, seeking it out. And as part of that, he expects a certain element of uh, his own intellectual uh, efforts. He's studying it out in his mind, in other words. And and I see that uh, as we look to Joseph Smith's uh, revelations, there's a little bit of Joseph Smith in those revelations. Uh, the very fact that uh, he's dictating ancient texts in the English language means that there is a human filter uh, involved, that uh, God really does speak to his children uh, according to their own understanding, according to their own language. Um, Joseph Smith uh, is a prophet. Um, he's also a man, and I think sometimes we need to make sense of that contradiction sometimes within the revelatory process itself. Yes, uh, human effort, divine sanction, just what we find in the DNC there. Human effort. There has to be a human effort part. And I think these papers could be looked at that way uh, as as that representing that portion, even though and it's all part of inspiration. It's it's not one is not inspiration, it's just intellectual and the other one's inspiration. I think it's all inspiration to them. And I think we can still consider it that way when we're studying and trying to receive inspiration from God, and that it's all of a piece. It's He accepts our intellectual efforts and helps us navigate the spiritual messages that we receive. That's Brian Hauglid. He's an associate professor and a visiting fellow here at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at Brigham Young University. We're also talking with Robin Scott Jensen, an associate managing historian and the project archivist for the Joseph Smith Papers. Together, they co-edited Volume 4, Book of Abraham and Related Manuscripts as part of the Joseph Smith Papers project. Two other questions before we go. Rob, did the Joseph Smith Papers uh, research team uncover anything new that was previously unknown about these documents, putting this book together? Yeah, there's a... Documentary editors uh, make a big deal of small things uh, sometimes, but it's sometimes those small things that uh, have lasting implications. There's one particular uh, instance where um, there are two documents uh, in here, uh, two Book of Abraham 
manuscripts, the manuscript um, in manuscript form, one written by uh, William W. Phelps and uh, uh, Frederick G. Williams. These have always posed a, a challenge. Uh, we've never known precisely the order in which these were created. And as we looked more closely at these, we realized that uh, these documents were created at the same time. In other words, uh, there was some sort of dictation process, and then Phelps and Williams are capturing these uh, this same oral text uh, at the same time. One of the pieces of evidence for that uh, that seems pretty solid is that there was, uh, and we're really going to get into the nitty-gritty here, but uh, uh, there was one large piece of paper that was uh, cut in half, divided in half, and those two pieces of paper from the same larger piece of paper make up page one of each of the respective pages of the Book of Abraham. Uh, and so what we have is pretty uh, compelling evidence that uh, they're there at the same time using the same piece of paper, um, creating um, this text of the Book of Abraham that uh, gives us a new appreciation to the dictation process. Usually when we hear about Joseph Smith dictating, um, it's uh, him dictating to uh, one singular scribe. Uh, so it's it's interesting to imagine to re- try to reconstruct um, what that would have looked like uh, with Joseph Smith dictating to multiple clerks. It's interesting that we're now talking about this when years and years ago Ed Ashman proposed the same thing, hmm. and it it created a firestorm of rejection amongst our LDS scholars. But now here we are hmm. talking about this and agreeing with Ed Ashman. About having multiple clerks Multi- in particular at the same time sort of writing Receiving dictation, yeah. Why was that so controversial? I have no idea. <laughs> Probably because it was Ed Ashman that proposed oh, okay. it. That's all. <laughs> and Ed's not here with us today. Uh. <laughs> and there's one other, uh, I find it interesting, and it, it's hard to express it uh, just verbally. You kind of need to see it, um, but... Uh, Brian earlier was talking about these notebooks that they created uh, with copies of different uh, characters, um, some of the vignettes and whatnot. One of those notebooks has a blank first page that's not too uncommon. Um, As we looked more closely at that, I noticed a very small hole in the middle of the the manuscript, and I, I looked at that wondering what that was. Come to find out that seemed to be the uh, anchor of a compass, and they created a, a perfect circle on that blank page. Uh, not in ink or pencil, but uh, some hard metal of some sort etched into the paper itself, this, uh, this circle. And then they made a, a slightly larger circle. And as I looked at that, I realized that that must have been an early attempt or maybe a trial effort to copy down the hypocephalus, later this, known as this, facsimile 2. The circular looking. Yep, the, the circle. If you yeah. look at that, there's there's actually two circles. There's yeah. kind of the outer circle, then the inner circle with characters written kind of uh, along the outer edge. And it seems that that, uh, that circle, that, that attempt, they were going to do that and then realized, you know what? We need a much bigger piece of paper to do this. And so one of those things that uh, I find deeply fascinating, and and some of my friends kind of roll their eyes thinking, wow, that's very nerdy of you. (laughs) Cool. We also have on one of the, I think it's on the Williams manuscript, the 1841 Book of Abraham manuscript, at the top of one of the pages we have some some erased uh, Egyptian, Egyptian material that comes from or related to some of that earlier 1835 work on the Egyptian papers. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty interesting, but it was yeah. erased. Yeah. Mm. 
What all that means, I'm not sure. Um, before we go, how would you? This is this is a big question, but I wonder, I wonder how you would characterize as a scholar the relationship between reason and faith, Rob, between sort of using the tools of the academy and also coming to these documents as a Latter Day Saint, as a believing member of the Church. Uh, yeah, as a Latter-day Saint, the writings of Joseph Smith, and in particular the revelations and translation, are scripture to me. They not only offer uh, comfort to me personally, individually, they they are the canon of the church. They are what holds the community together. And so as I, as I look to uh, the Book of Abraham, in particular with this volume, I see a work of scripture that is meaningful to millions of Latter-day Saints. And so, as I look to that, uh, as I read it, as I try to make sense of it, my initial upbringing within the church is to see it at face value, to read the words, to to see it in print, to look at the facsimiles, and to recognize that as scripture, as the word of God. And as I take scholarship, as I take reason, as I take my intellectual learning, to the Book of Abraham, and in particular, the 19th century coming forth of the Book of Abraham, I am faced with a recalibration sometimes of my previous assumptions about the Book of Abraham. I am forced to recognize that some of the things that I learned about the Book of Abraham were not, in fact, based upon the facts, the evidence, the historical context. Some people see that, and they realize that uh, if one aspect of their testimony is false, then then they should reject everything. And I, I refuse to live in that sort of a world, in that black and white thinking. It offers a very brittle view of the world of religion. And so as I, as I look to the Book of Abraham and as I recognize that it's a very complex document, I actually relish in the fact that the Book of Abraham can be complicated and can be true at the same time. Truth isn't simple. Uh, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. And so when I look to the book of Abraham, when I recognize the complexity, I also find comfort in the fact that my own faith is complicated. My own faith uh, is based upon all sorts of uh, things uh, within my own experience and based upon my family and friends' experience. And so the book of Abraham kind of writ large is my own personal testimony. I'm bringing to my own faith many worldviews, um, kind of a 21st century sensibility based upon who I've interacted with, and I need to figure out where my own intellect ends and the, and the faith, the, the miraculous, the divine begins. And that's easier said than done, um, and it's a lifelong effort that we as members of the church are taught to do for the rest of our life. It's part of the enduring to the end, I think. How about you, Brian? Well, I, I can certainly say that the book of Abraham has helped me mature in my testimony. And by that I mean, I admit, when I first joined the church, I saw things pretty black and white. I mean, it's this or it's that. Or it's, uh, and, and the book of Abraham, studying the book of Abraham, and because the book of Abraham has some pretty deep doctrines in it, as, you, as we are all aware of, but also the coming forth of the book of Abraham, is challenging in a sense because it's not what you usually think about. It's not what you, you know, it brings out things that you have to kind of grapple with. You sort of have to wrestle with it a bit. But that's been good for my testimony. Uh, yes, it's maybe a little bit more complicated, but that's okay. 
You know, I still look at the book of Abraham as scripture. I still look at it as having the ability to move me uh, and to reach me, to touch my spirit. And everything is still there that way. But it's also helped me to see that, that Joseph Smith was a man and a prophet, that I'm a man and a spiritual being, and that we're all that way. And that I think we can learn from this whole book of Abraham thing that we shouldn't just throw out everything because it doesn't match, you know, some presuppositions that we have. We need to think through it a little bit more, grapple with it, wrestle with it, what what you need to do. When I teach my students, I teach them critical thinking. You have to deal with the critiques in life. Don't just accept things for what they are. It's okay to question. It's okay to, to try and grapple with things. And, I mean, Jacob wrestled an angel. We're talking about that we, we don't just have to be passive machines that just accept everything. I think the book of Abraham challenges some of those assumptions. Do you think it seems the church is sort of going through that process as well? I mean, some of the ideas about what the Book of Abraham had to be or was in the past in official church discourse is beginning to change, and this this publication is the number one piece of evidence of that, that, that the church is likewise looking at things that it previously held and deciding to revise those or to offer something different, which some people feel wronged about, or they, you know, as the church tries to come to grips with a better understanding as well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was in 2013, I think, that some of the introductory material to the Book of Abraham in the introductory section to the Pearl of Great Price in the, in the scriptures, in, in the, the canonized scriptures, scriptures, was changed. Yeah. And before it was you know, that Robin maybe should comment on this because I know he was actually part of this, but it was nuanced. Maybe I could just say it that way. It was nuanced. Uh, Robin, you want to remark on that? Yeah, I think um, as you look to, for instance, the gospel topics essays uh, that the church released, uh, there's there's an essay on the Book of Abraham, um, and it's, it's grappling with proposing various theories uh, of the coming forth of the Book of Abraham. I, I think that the, the church as an institution changes the historical narrative. The historical narrative is based upon um, archival research, documentary finds, historiographical theories, whatnot. Those change every generation. There's always new things coming forth. And I think that uh, as I see things, church leaders, church members are grappling with new historical understanding of, of not just the Book of Abraham, but all of its history. And as a historian, I think that's great. Uh, I, th- I think that uh, whitewashing history is, is not ideal. Uh, holding up some of the past individuals, placing them on uh, pedestals is not ideal. Finding nuanced faith means offering a nuanced narrative. And I think that that's going to be challenging because we have had narratives in the past that uh, uh, are tied so closely to uh, members' testimonies. And so as we look to this recalibration, as I, as I call it, um, as we look to uh, understanding what members of the church's testimony is actually based upon, then we can recognize that uh, basing testimony upon faults or, or simplistic historical facts, it's, it's not going to help anyone out. The last question I said would be the last question, but I think we need to do one more. Uh, <laughs> and, and this is, I think it speaks to... <laughs> 
the whole subject. Because notice one thing we didn't talk about in this interview at all was the actual narrative of the book of Abraham. Why, yeah. do, why do you think that is? The Other than that I'm the one who structured the interview. So like, <laughs> let, I, sh- let me I guess just I should say ask first. myself, but yeah. That I that did suggest? deal with an, with a narrative in my textual history of the Book of Abraham mm-hmm. that I published back in 2010. Here with the Maxwell Institute, yeah. With the Maxwell yeah. Institute, absolutely, and created a critical text out of that and looked very carefully at the narrative uh, and how it kind of changed over time. And as far as doctrinally, maybe that's kind yeah, of what you're getting is, at. Why, yeah. don't we, why don't we deal with some of the – well, this book, obviously, is a Joe Smith Papers book, and that doesn't really fit within the – the realm of what we're trying to do there. Um, yeah, you're just trying to document- make the documents themselves It's a documentary editing volume. So. so that then people can then do work based on the documents. Right, it's, yeah. it's a resource for yeah. people. And so, but I agree, you know, there's plenty to talk about in terms yeah. of the content of the Book of Abraham. I think increasingly you're seeing less angst uh, over the content of the Book of Abraham than you are the context of the Book of Abraham. Yeah. Um, there have been... People who may have left the church or felt frustrated with the historical narrative, it's not so much about the content itself. It's its not about the actual narrative of the Book of Abraham. It's about the way in which it was produced. And I find that interesting, not surprising at all, that uh, Joseph Smith, as prophet, seer, revelator, um, there's a lot hanging on the Book of Abraham and what it means for Joseph Smith's revelatory process, um, his translation. It's been such a, an important symbol for uh, Joseph Smith's calling. And when people look to the Book of Abraham and, you know, when people say, oh, I left the church because of the Book of Abraham, um, that shorthand that I think almost everyone understands is it's not the content. If we have simplistic views of how Joseph Smith produced his scripture, then it's not going to take much to topple that simplistic understanding. And so I think that uh, producing a better understanding, kind of this nuance understanding of the production of scripture um, by Joseph Smith is not only good scholarship, but I think it's good for Latter-day Saints throughout the world. And I think, again, that speaks to the importance of the church then producing work like this that helps recalibrate that story, that the church is saying, actually, we do want to get this history correct. We want there to be a record of this history, and we want to make it accessible, even while recognizing that that that, that can be hard. So even though we didn't get time to talk about all the contents of the Book of Abraham, people can read it. It's uh, it's available, and they can also see the documents now, the original documents that the Book of Abraham came from. And that's in the Volume 4 of the Joseph Smith Papers Revelations and Translations series. It's called Book of Abraham and Related Manuscripts. And today we talked with the editors of that book, Robin Scott Jensen, an associate managing historian and project archivist for the Joseph Smith Papers, and Brian M. Hauglid, who's here at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at Brigham Young University. Rob, thanks for coming in today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Blair. And Brian, as usual, it was good to spend some time with you as well. Thank you, Blair. Thank you for listening to another episode. One last thing, here's your Maxwell Institute podcast review of the month. This one comes courtesy of someone claiming the name Tiglath Tiglath Pileser. Mm. Uh, Apparently that's some sort of Assyrian king or something. I don't know. Uh, But here's the review. Even as a scholar in training of religious history, I find these interviews to be terribly useful. Overviews of new scholarship is just right. It's deeper than Wikipedia, especially with the back-and-forth interplay, but it's not like reading a technical monograph. Keep up the good work. 
Uh, thank you, TP. I'll call you TP. Uh, <laughs> how about that? Uh, you uh, and you can be like TP as well. You can review the show too. Go to iTunes and let us know what you think of the show. We appreciate everybody who takes the time to rate and review the show. And you might show up here as the review of the month. And I might even be able to pronounce your name. 